1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight Listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, I promise you will love my new audiobook for moms don't have time to a quarantine anthology. It's not about the quarantine, but a lot of the essays were written during that time about other things that moms don't have time to do or other busy people. Things like reading, eating, working out, breathing, having sex, and 60 best best-selling and notable authors wrote essays. All those authors have been on this very podcast. So, if you like to listen to my conversations, if you want to get to know these authors better, I read the audiobook myself. Check it out on Audible. Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. Again, Audible audiobook. Go listen to it. It's like 60 mini podcasts. I hope you enjoy. If any of you have been following me on Instagram or subscribed to my newsletter or anything, you will know that I am obsessed with Suleika Jawad's Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of a life interrupted. It is one of my two picks of the summer, even though it didn't come out in the summer because I loved it so much and I read it the summer. So that's why it's my pick now. (laughs) Anyway, it is so good. You have to read it. But anyway, here is her bio and then listen to our conversation. Suleika Jawad is the author of the instant New York Times bestselling memoir, Between Two Kingdoms. She wrote the Emmy award winning New York Times column, Life Interrupted, And her reported features and essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Vogue, and NPR, among other publications. A highly sought-after speaker, her mainstage TED Talk was one of the 10 most popular of 2019 and has nearly 4 million views. She is also the creator of the Isolation Journal's Community Creativity Project, founded during the COVID-19 pandemic to help others convert isolation into artistic solitude. Over 100,000 people from around the world have joined. Born in New York City to a Tunisian father and a Swiss mother, Suleika attended the Juilliard School's pre-college program for the double base and earned her BA with highest honors from Princeton University and an MFA in writing and literature from Bennington College. Suleika's career aspirations as a war correspondent were cut short when at age 22 she was diagnosed with leukemia. She began writing her New York Times column, Life Interrupted, from her hospital room at Sloan Kettering, and has since become a fierce advocate for those living with illness and enduring life's many other interruptions. Soleika served on Barack Obama's Presidential Cancer Panel, the National Advisory Board of the Bone, Marrow, and Cancer Foundation, and the Brooklyn Public Library's Arts and Letters Committee. She was awarded the Red Door Advocacy and Community Service Award and has been an artist in residence at UCross, Art Yard, and the Kerouac Project. Suleika travels the world teaching workshops and speaking, and she was an Anacapa Scholar in residence at the Thatcher School and a lecturer in the Narrative Medicine Program at Columbia University. She has appeared on the Today Show, NPR's Talk of the Nation, the Paris Review, the Los Angeles Times, and Glamour, among others. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Suleika. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted. Thank you,
2: Zippy. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I literally am like overwhelmed by anticipation at being able to talk to you. I inhaled this memoir. I just like feel all this love towards you even though I don't know you and like I have so much respect for you as a writer and the way you did this memoir. I am just like over the moon about it. So anyway, congratulations. Not that you need this from me. I know it's already been a bestseller, but I just, I was so moved and you're so amazing. So
2: The love is mutual. (laughs) I have been a longtime fan, and it's such a a joy to be here with you.
0: Okay. For those who don't know what Between Two Kingdoms is about, would you give like the quickie summary of it, please?
2: Sure. So Between Two Kingdoms is a memoir, and it tells... The story of my 20s, which were a very eventful decade in my life, as they are for lots of people. But it's really the story of my time in the kingdom of the sick. I was diagnosed with leukemia when I was 22. But more than that, it's about what happened after and about what we do when our lives are upended and we have to figure out how to live again and, and what that looks like and what the way forward is going to be. So this book w- was chronicling that that journey from, from the kingdom of the sick back towards the kingdom of the well and the kind of in-between place that I found myself in. Wow. So I know
0: that along the way you had been writing in your journal because you tell us in the book that you have been doing that. The first inkling that this would become a book is when, for the reader at least, is when you visit A psychic and I can't remember where, maybe New Mexico or something who says that you will write a book one day. And obviously you had been publishing your column in the New York Times and even won an Emmy for the videos that accompanied it. When did you know that you were going to write a book about your experience or did you kind of know all along?
2: I think like a lot of writers, I'm always, you know, I, it was always my dream to write a book, to hopefully write many books. But when I came out of cancer treatment after nearly four years, I was determined to write about anything other than illness. I had lived enough cancer. I had written about it. I felt like I had told that story in the form that I needed to, which was this New York Times column. And I was desperate to move forward with my life and to move forward from this experience. And I certainly didn't want to spend the next couple of years of my life writing about it. And I actually had a really pivotal conversation with Cheryl Strayed. In which I told her this, I said, I really want to write something new. I don't know what that's going to be, but I know what I don't want to write about, which is illness. And she said, well, the funny thing about that is that when I went to go write wild, I knew I wanted to write about this hike but I didn't want to write about grieving my mother and of course the book is about her hike but it's all about grieving her mother and what she left me with was this which is that we tell the story we need to tell and we have no business trying to avoid it and that really opened something up for me and I realized that maybe the subject of my book was the subject that was very much on my mind at that time, which was how we move forward when our lives are upended by a trauma. So it wasn't necessarily the book that I expected to write, but it was the one that I needed to write. Wow.
0: Well, apparently it's the one that we all need to read as well, because (laughs) my gosh, it's it's just so good. You know, there was so much in the book about Will, and I feel like Mm -hmm. your feelings for him, even by the end, were not And I don't want to like necessarily give anything away, but just not resolved, right? I felt like you had so much guilt and so much, you know, what's not overthinking, but where you like replay what could have been, what could have been, and then you reach a place Mm -hmm. where you're like, "That's not healthy. I should stop." But yet, it still kind of like lingers. So I was just wondering, and I know you're, you know, I can see from Instagram and everything, and from the end of your book, what what your life is like now. But do you ever, do you still sort of wrestle with that? Do you still think that? do you put blame on yourself or do you like, where do you feel about the whole situation now? And like, are you two even still in touch? And I know that's not even his real name, but
2: but I'm just so curious. So Will was my my boyfriend who I'd been dating only for a couple of months when I got sick. And he was very much there for me for for a lot of my illness. And, you know, I, wa- I wanted to write about that relationship because there was no way to write about my illness and and what happened after without talking about the people who were crucial to my ability to survive it. And he was very much one of those people. But I think I'm also interested in writing about complicated relationships. Of course, you know, we've all gone through breakups where we want not just a sense of closure, but hopefully a sense of Mutual reconciliation, some kind of peace summit, and Will and I were never able to achieve that together, and it was challenging in terms of the writing because in writing we naturally want a sense of resolution. But as I was working on it, it occurred to me that there was also an opportunity there, which was to write about these relationships where maybe we don't ever feel a sense of closure, and I suspect uh, just from talking to my girlfriends that there are a lot of us who have had relationships like that that end that you know they ended and that it's for the best but that there's also a kind of ongoingness in terms of untangling what it meant and and how to achieve that sense of reconciliation even when it's not possible to achieve it with someone else but you have to kind of find it within yourself so a lot of the book you know, is about healing from illness, but it's also about the kind of imprints of of traumas on our relationships and and the ways they can can fracture them, but can also create these these moments and opportunities for for a kind of depth and and a weird beauty beauty that wouldn't be possible without them. Wow.
0: I mean, I feel like so much with relationships, especially in your 20s and younger, when you're just sort of starting out, there's so much about timing, right? And you you reference this like many times, like what if I had met John a couple of months later? What if I had met Will? Like what mm. if, you know, and it, it, your brain just sort of like naturally goes there, right? Because you're like, well, this might be the perfect person, but, dot, 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 but then you can't isolate those variables. I mean, that's sort of how you end up Marrying one person versus the other—it's like when you meet and where you are right then. But that's sort of an unsettling feeling, right? What about soulmates? An t- what about like destiny? But really, timing—I yeah,
2: don't know. There's <laughs> well, and I think that question of, of timing and of uncertainty informs so many aspects of being in your twenties, even in terms of you know what internship you take or what job you have fresh out of college. And there's this sense that you're maybe marching or or working towards something, but also the sense that you could have chosen many other paths. And so I think, you know, a a lot of the book was, was wrestling with what it means to swim in that ocean of uncertainty that, of course, we all do, but that feels especially true when you're in your 20s and you're very much figuring out who you are and what you want to do and how you want to participate in the world and what kind of partner you want alongside you for all of that. And yeah, yeah. I mean they're they they are the eternal questions, I think, for all of us. <laughs>
0: there must be research and I should just like google Google this when we get off the phone but, or get off the Zoom. But you know, sort of the effect of trauma at different life stages. Like what happens if you have trauma in like as a child, like in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, because it the way you process it changes so much. Right. And I feel but I feel like there's some intensity to it, particularly in your twenties. I don't know. This is just my two cents.
2: It's so true. And I think being in your early 20s is its own in-between place. You're no longer a kid, but you're not a fully formed adult yet. Although my 22-year-old self would have insisted that I knew that I was absolutely an adult and did not need help from anyone. and knew exactly what I was doing, but it's this liminal space. And I think when you undergo a trauma or you get diagnosed with an illness in your early 20s, it is a really different experience. Because for me, at 22, I was fresh out of college. I had a sense of what I wanted to do, but I didn't have a fully formed career yet. I didn't have my own family yet. I didn't have years and years of a relationship to create a kind of baseline to return to. So everything was in a first draft form. And what that meant for me when I emerged from this illness was that I didn't have a life necessarily to return to. At that point, I was 27. And I very quickly realized I couldn't go back to being the person I had been pre-diagnosis. And I certainly wasn't a cancer patient anymore, but I also didn't know who I was, which was an unsettling feeling at 27. But more than that, I think the thing that I arrived at was that as much as I wanted to move on from those difficult years, uh, to compartmentalize those traumatic experiences and stow them in the past and to skip over the hard work, of healing and grieving and uncovering who you are, that moving on is a kind of myth. We have to move forward with those experiences and, and integrate them into our present as we kind of take baby steps toward whatever it is that comes next.
0: Wow! You wrote so beautifully also about all the other cancer patients you met along the way and how they became your family. I wonder if I dog-eared that page. I dog-eared like so many. I'll have to find some quotes to read in a second. But, (laughs) But how part of what you felt sort of fell on your plate afterwards was this responsibility to live sort of all caps because so many people you journeyed with along the way weren't there and why you, and then you talked Mm -hmm. a little about PTSD and sort of the same sense of like, if you've survived something, you know, it's like a, like it sounded to me like a a war scenario, right? You feel you've made it and like three out of seven or three out of 10, make it why you, what should you do with that knowledge? And that's why you Mm -hmm. feel like in pursuit of some of these goals. And I just like, you know, in my twenties, I lost my best friend and roommate on nine 11 and Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, this is no comparison, but just the sense that like I got to live and Stacy didn't get to live, like makes me every day still. And I'm in my mid forties now, like, okay, well, what am I doing here? Like she disappeared into thin air one day and I didn't. So where does that leave me? Like, is this why I work? So, you know, like, is that where it all comes from? <laughs> you know, like, because what do yeah. you do when, when life suddenly becomes like something that you've been it's like being given twice or something,
2: right? Totally. I so I so understand that feeling, and I think when you you know confront mortality, either yourself or or by way of a loved one's death, there's this heightened awareness. As as Joan Didion writes, that that life can change in an ordinary instant, and I think with that awareness comes a sense of responsibility to To make of your life something exceptionally, to make of your life something exceptional, even if it's in a small way, to not just be a kind of passive passenger in your life, but to really feel the the full weight and, and privilege of of what it means to be alive and to be a human being. And I definitely felt that. I also lost my best friend Melissa, who I met in treatment, who died the same month that I finished cancer treatment. And I had this, you know, this double sense of 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 guilt, of course, that I was here and she was not, and trying to make sense of that, which I still can't make sense of. I don't think I will ever make sense of. But also this feeling that I had, you know, fought so hard to survive these treatments. And I think when I when I emerged from that experience, I felt a huge amount of pressure to be grateful, to be alive, to be doing all the things that I'd wanted to do and hadn't been able to do. But at the same time, I was also grieving and I was probably more lost than I've ever been. And so that sense of dissonance between what should be and what was and how I felt I should be living my life and, and the realities of, of what it meant to carry the wreckage of that, you know, that sorrow and, and that loss was really difficult for me to make sense of. And, you know, we talk about reentry in the context of of veterans coming back from war or incarceration. But I don't think we talk about it as much in the context of grief or of surviving a traumatic experience like illness. And you can't just jump into whatever comes next, or start living your life in technical or as much as we'd all like to. And that was that was my work for for that that first year out of my treatment and out of losing Melissa was actually understanding that as much as I I wanted to be living this like wonderful, happy, meaningful life, that that process of of grieving and recovery was going to be a kind of brutal act of self-discovery and that it wasn't always going to feel fun or pleasant in the way that maybe I wanted it to.
0: I'm so sorry for your loss of Melissa. And the greatest part of this is that you totally brought her to life for... For me and for anybody who reads this book, right, none of us would have necessarily met her. And that's one of the great things about memoir, I think. It's like you just conjured her up. And now, to be honest, I'm like, I want to find pictures of Melissa because now I have such an image in my head because you, you <laughs> like painted such a clear picture of her. but but you brought her to life. And like it's it's like real sorcery to be able to do that. really? I, you know, all of a sudden she's like dancing in my mind, and, you know, it's amazing. Like You put her there. It's just the coolest. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I just think the power of of sharing stories in this format is just otherworldly.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Well, and I think it's one of the great joys of of writing. I got to to live in that world with those people for the duration of the time I was writing the book. I got to be jumping over subway turnstiles and getting <laughs> stopped by the cops with Melissa. And I got to be going on these adventures that we went together with. And, and it is a kind of wonderful sorcery.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Just like, and you're bringing the ashes at the end. And I didn't even know that about the Taj Mahal. Oh my gosh. All this stuff in here is like... I learned so much, not to mention like the power of doing a project for a hundred days, whatever it is, like just even adopting that as a strategy after this book sounds like, like, Ooh, what can I do for a hundred days that would like change my life and be really interesting. Amazing. Well, let me just read like a quote or two. So people who are listening, might not know you can get a sense of like what an incredible writer you are. This was just one sentence. For the person facing death, mourning begins in the present tense in a series of private preemptive goodbyes that take place long before the body's last breath. Oh. God, you're so good. Let me find something else. What I do is I dog ear a page and then I hope that I can figure out why I dog aired it when I go back to it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing.
0: Well, oh, I like this too a lot. I mean, I liked all of it. So this is, in Will's absence, I spent. I began spending more time with the cancer crew. Without my ever having to ask for anything or explain, they understood I was in a lowdown place. Erica made sweatshirts with the words Team Susu printed across the front in varsity lettering and Kristen accompanied me to urgent care or to my chemo appointments so I wouldn't have to be alone. Max was always showing up in my apartment with 99 cents slices of pizza and expertly rolled joints and melissa rallied the troops organizing game nights dance parties and the occasional outing a hiccup of genetics had brought us together all of us bound by rogue malignant cells and a heightened sense of our mortality but at some point we'd become more than circumstantial friends we were family oh. Oh. <laughs> Oh, like makes me want to cry. This whole thing. This, okay, one last paragraph. Grief is a ghost that visits without warning. It comes in the night and rips you from sleep. It fills your chest with shards of glass. It interrupts you mid-laugh when you're at a party, chastising you that just for a moment you've forgotten. It haunts you until it becomes a part of you, shadowing you, breath for breath. Oh my God, you're so good.
2: Oh, oh thank
0: you. It's also moving. So once you finished your journey across the country and writing this book, well, maybe go back to writing the book. Did you, What happened after the journey across the country? Did you sit down and like write it all at
2: once or what happened next? Mm, yeah, so I left home on this 15,000 mile solo road trip that I say with a laugh because now that I'm a slightly more seasoned driver, I think back on that and yeah and see what madness it was but I returned from that trip and went up to Vermont my family has a tiny little cabin in the woods has no cell reception and I spent the next six months there working on this book and by working on it I you know like a lot of first time authors, very daunted by the task of trying to synthesize all these experiences and all these memories and to find some kind of structure to contain them. So I began with 20 scenes and I just wrote these 20 scenes on the stream of consciousness without necessarily worrying about why certain memories or certain details were appearing. And then I tried to figure out the connective tissue between them. So that was what I did. And I had a a post-it note above my desk with these words that someone had shared with me that said, if you want to write a good book, write what you don't want others to know about you. If you want to write a great book, write what you don't want to know about yourself. Ooh, that's so good. And so I really, you know, wanted to write a different kind of illness memoir or or recovery memoir and, and wanted to challenge myself to excavate the truth behind the truth behind the truth. We all have these stories that we tell either to ourselves or to others about how certain things went. And I wanted to dig below the surface of that. And so this book is the culmination of many drafts of many attempts to excavate the truth behind the truth behind the truth. And yeah, it took me about three and a half years all in all. And I really feel like I, I grew up in the process of of writing this book, not just as an individual, but but as a writer.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. And do you still, are you still writing? Like, do do you still chronicle all of your stuff personally in your journal? I know you write professionally, you know, tell me what your, what's like your current life like?
2: Yeah. So I do write in my journal. That's the first thing I do every morning. It's the first thing I've done for years and years and years. And I've, been working on a next book idea, uh, which has been fun. I'm still trying to kind of carve out the space to properly focus on it. But I feel like for a lot of writers, I work in seasons. I have a season of researching or, or daydreaming about a book and then a season of drafting it and then editing it and then putting it out into the world. So I'm still in the mode of, of trying to, to usher between two kingdoms out into the world, but I'm itching to, to get started on on my next big project. Wow. So amazing.
0: What did you not put in? Like, what did you not leave? What did you not put in the book? What like got cut out or what did you decide you couldn't put in or something like that?
2: Mm, it's such a good question so I had about a 60 page chapter in part two of the book that took place on the road trip and I at the time was sharing drafts with my friend the author Melissa Phoebos. and I shared it with her and I said I'm really worried that this could be hurtful to someone I care about and she said okay well you have to share it with them but not right now keep writing So I kept writing and writing and writing, and I got to the end of the book, and my manuscript was due, and I called my friend Melissa, and she said, did you share those 60 pages? And I said, I can't. I don't think I can do it. I just, uh, yeah, I don't think I can. And she said, all right, cut it. And so I deleted the 60 pages, and I sent the book off to my editor, and nobody ever noticed (laughs) (laughs) which was a great shock to me but also a great lesson and that sometimes you need to write through something in order to get to the next part but there's always the version of the book you write for yourself and the version of the book you share with others and those two can be very very different um but I think often especially with my Mart, you know the question of of how we write about others and how we do so in a way that feels fair and 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 loving and doesn't kind of unwittingly hurt someone's feeling is the thing that prevents a lot of people from writing in the first person at all. And so realizing that I could write and and remove that worry and then make decisions later was really liberating for me. So there's a lot that's not in the book that I I had to write for myself in order to get to the pieces that needed to be in the book, which I realize is very vague and an unfair, maybe cliffhanger.
0: No, I mean, <laughs> but, I love what I love how you described it. I mean just because, I don't know, just those intermediate steps are just because it doesn't make its way in. It doesn't mean it's not required, right? I feel like that's exactly. so often writers say that it's a waste of time, the stuff that doesn't get in the book or that they throw away, but it's not because you couldn't possibly progress without it. So how is that a waste?
2: Well, and I will say this. I have a document on my laptop called Chop File, where I put all the pieces of you know, the scraps of drafts that end up on the cutting floor, and things always end up working their way into a next project, even if it's not necessarily the sentences themselves, but maybe one unanswered question that leads me to write an essay or to write a reported piece, and so I really believe that none of it is wasted. And I live by that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to write because (laughs) it would be too depressing to think about the months and months spent on drafts (laughs) that have never seen the light of day.
0: (laughs) Okay, towards the end of the book, you have a visit with a man who was on death row who had written you at the beginning of the book. And you can tell in your story how moved you were by that whole experience. And then on Instagram, like what's happened in between? Because now you were passionately trying to help another man who was on death row. Has this become a thing for you? Like, tell me, like, how did we get here? What happened Mm -hmm. with that sort of storyline of your life?
2: Yeah, so one of the first letters I ever received in response to my column was from a man on death row who went by the nickname of Little GQ. His name is Quentin Jones. And he wrote me this beautiful handwritten letter reflecting on the unexpected parallels between our lives of isolation and facing mortality. You know, me in my hospital room bubble and him on death row in Texas. And so he and about 20-something other people ended up forming my itinerary on the road. I didn't just want to go on a three-month road trip by myself, but I really wanted to seek out people who had had their own big reckonings, who had had to navigate their own aftermaths. And he was one of them and and probably the most memorable stop on my trip. And I had never been to death row. I was very nervous going there. And he upended every assumption and preconception that I had about individuals who are sentenced to death. And we formed a friendship a friendship that lasted long after the road trip. And when I learned right before my book was published that he'd had an execution date set, I decided to use my book tour as an opportunity to amplify his story as much as possible. And I became involved in in leading a grassroots effort to get him clemency. And so the guy you saw on Instagram is little GQ from the book. And so, you know, very, in a kind of heartbreaking turn of events, he was executed on May 19th, but I got to go down to Texas. um, It was one of my first (laughs) post-pandemic trips out of the house to see him on death row and to visit with him face-to-face and to interview him on camera. And it was his first time ever being interviewed other His first time being on camera and, you know, in our last conversation, he said to me, I I feel at peace because I got to tell my story on my own terms and my own words. And his last words said, I want everyone to pick up the pebble and throw it into the next lake and to let it ripple out and to keep doing the good work. And so... It was, you know, surreal to think about how a single letter led me on this road trip and and led to us, you know, being in each other's lives in this way, especially in these last couple of months of working day and night with a team of pro bono lawyers on on his case. But to me, that's the magic of, of stories and the way they allow us to connect and and to see each other in in ways that we never could otherwise. Oh my gosh.
0: Well, now I'm even more upset knowing that that's the same guy. I thought because his name was different. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Do you know the author Brittany K. Barnett? Have you read her book or... I haven't. Should I add this on my my TBR? System? Oh my gosh. First of all, you have to read it. I'm going to like, can I connect you on email or something? But that is Please. her whole mission <laughs> is, is helping people get off death row. And she's amazing. And it, she had like the Amazon book of the year last year and it's called A Knock at Midnight. And or you could just listen to my podca- podcast with her. <laughs> I will, I will. Yeah. Anyway, you two should connect because you have a similar I would love that. big heart and mission. So we should definitely connect. And then another question just to tie up because now I have all these, like I wanted, like a longer, af, you know, epilogue. In the beginning, you decided to freeze your eggs. What has happened? Anything on that front since? Have you thought about that, or is that just like a chapter that's done? And I don't know. Have you given it any thought?
2: Yeah. So I learned via a Google search the night before I was going to be admitted to the hospital for to start chemo that. The side effects of my treatment were going to make me infertile, and at the time I was 22. The most thought I'd ever given to being a mother was how not to become <laughs> one before I was ready. <laughs> so I really, you know, hadn't given much thought to it. But I, I understood in that moment that preserving that choice for my future self felt hugely important, especially at a time. When everything was so uncertain. And I'd been given about a 35% chance of survival. And I and I wanted to invest in, in that 35% chance and, and the possibility of existing in that future. So I froze these eggs. I called them my toxicles <laughs> for years. I still have them. And I still don't know if I'll use them. I think I've learned that there are many ways to make a family and that you know making a family is its own kind of creative act. So I may use my toxicals, I may not. I'm interested in becoming a foster parent, but all of that is to be determined. But I do feel like, you know, and watching my mom become my caregiver when I was sick and watching her when I left for this road trip, where you know, for a lot of mothers when your daughter has just survived leukemia and has just gotten a driver's license the idea of them setting off alone on a 15,000 mile road trip is enough you know to to make you want to tell them they absolutely should not go but you know to her credit she said not only that she wanted me to go but that it was exactly the kind of worry that a mother of a 27 year old should have and that it was a privilege to have normal mom worries and to not be up at night because of biopsy results, but to be up at night because your daughter's on a road trip. And so anyway, all of this to say that I think my my understanding of mothering and the many forms it can take has been so deepened by these last years of my life. And I'm excited to figure out what that means for me. Yeah. Sorry to
0: put you on the spot like that. It's probably completely unfair of me to ask you that question. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> so is this going to be a movie? I'm sure there's news about it, but I haven't researched enough
2: because I was so busy reading the book. <laughs> it is going to be, it hasn't been announced yet, but I, I will keep you posted. I'm really, I'm really excited Amazing. about seeing what comes of oh it. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Wow.
0: I feel like this is just going to help so many people continually along the way in all different forms. It's really amazing. I hate to even like end this interview. I could talk to you all day. So what advice <laughs> would you have for aspiring
2: authors? Ooh, good question. I think my advice is to do the work. I remember, you know, when I got sick, feeling like I couldn't become a writer since I wasn't well enough to go to an MFA program or to intern at a magazine or whatever it is that we think are those prerequisites to getting your foot in the door. And and my career really started because I began writing first a blog and, and then eventually it turned into a column, but I began writing for myself from my hospital bed about the subject that I could write about, which at the time you know, was this illness. But I guess to, yeah, not feel like you need two checks or boxes in order to get started, to not feel like you need an idyllic workspace or the perfect setup in order to finally get to your manuscript, but to write about what you can, when you can, and to start now.
0: Wow. Are you happy? How do you feel like in general? On a scale of one I to feel, ten.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I feel so happy. I feel, you know, it's it's been a, a surreal decade and I never dared dream any of the dreams that have come to fruition. In the last year, and yeah, I feel very grateful and very happy and and very happy to be here talking with you. Aww. I could also talk to you for another ten hours. Yeah, I <laughs> probably let you go.
0: <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure. Your book was like a plus one of the best I've ever read. I yeah. absolutely loved it. And I hope I get to meet you. I would be honored to meet you in the future if that ever comes to pass. And yeah, I just can't wait to keep reading what you write. And following along as your life sort of continues. So I hope you keep us in the loop as you sort of go through all your next stages.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Zibi. And yes, we will make that in-person hang happen. I would love that so much. And and thank you to everyone listening. This has been such a joy and a delight. All right. Well, have a great day. Bye. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.